Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. A few years ago, the legal scholar, veterinary surgeon, and homo sapiens Charles Foster spent some time trying to live like a badger, a deer, a swift, an otter, and a fox, hoping to understand animal consciousness. That book, Being a Beast, now finds its unlikely sequel in Being a Human, in which Foster attempts the perhaps more difficult task of reconstructing the human consciousness of millennia ago. He settles on three pivotal turns in our history, the Paleolithic and Neolithic eras, and far more recently, the Enlightenment. How does one escape the constraints of modern thought, of written language, digital technology, creature comfort, in pursuit of the origins of modern consciousness? Well, Charles Foster joins the podcast to report on his quest in the woods of Northern England and beyond. Thanks for going back in time with me, Charles. Great to be here, Stephanie. Looking forward to our chat. So the Paleolithic, the Neolithic, and the Enlightenment. Why go back and pretend to be a human in these three eras of consciousness? Well, why go back at all is because only <laughs> by going back can we decide what sort of creatures we are. And it's rather important to know what sort of creatures we are. Unless we know what sort of creatures we are, we can't know really how to thrive, how to be happy, how to be moral, how to behave, um, how to talk to our friends and our loved ones, how to conduct political discourse. So that's the why, um, go back at all. But why go back to these three ages? Well, the Upper Paleolithic is the time when human consciousness in a modern sense first ignited. It's the first time when in the archaeological record we can see creatures who look and behave very like us. Um, and depending on how you do the calculation, about between 75 and 95% of our time as humans has been spent as Upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherers. That's really what we are. So in order to decide what we are, we've got to become Upper Paleolithic. Um, why become Neolithic? Answer because it was in the Neolithic that the steep downward slope began, um, at the bottom of which we now are. So we had previously had in the Upper Paleolithic uh, an ecstatic, porous relationship with the rest of the world and with uh, one another. The boundaries separating um, humans from non-humans were very thin. The boundaries separating humans from other humans were thin. Um, we bled into one another in a way which was very good for us all. Um, we saw in those times non-humans as cousins, which was, of course, what Darwin told us we precisely were. That changed in the Neolithic when we settled and we became farmers and we drew lines between us and non-human species. Uh, colonialism entered our vocabulary. We started to draw lines too across the land, walls and fences carving up the land. And we drew lines as well across our own minds. We created categories in our own heads, which previously hadn't existed. We became uh, less integrated um, animals and we became imprisoned by those categories. But 
stopping moving did terrible things to us. As Bruce Chatwin pointed out, if we stop being nomads, bad stuff happens to us. And the bad stuff which he describes, status, toxic hierarchies, as well as all sorts of physical ills. Most of our really evil political culture began then. And then I cut to the Enlightenment. Um, up until then, even though our relationship with the non-human world had become fractured, um, we still, even in the big Abrahamic monotheisms, um, saw the non-human world as ensouled and therefore morally significant. Um, the Enlightenment said eventually, although it didn't start this way, um, that there was only matter. It abolished souls from the world and eventually from us as well. It said that there was uh, not only no soul in a badger, but no soul in us and that nothing meant anything. Souls were exorcised. Um, that was a bad thing because it's not obviously morally wrong to smash up a machine, which is how the world was reconceived at the Enlightenment, it does seem morally dodgy to kill an ensouled thing. Uh, and also stories were abolished then. It was said that no stories uh, meant anything. And being storytelling animals ourselves, um, who are stories ourselves, um, that produced a hemorrhage of of confidence, a hemorrhage of dignity, um, the bequest of which we can now see um, on all levels, psychological, spiritual, political, sociological, uh, ecological. So that uh, is why I went back to those three ages. A very, very long answer to a very short question. Well, I sense a little bit of uh, of bias in here for one era in particular, the Paleolithic. Did living as a Paleolithic human for four seasons measure up to the somewhat romanticized idea you had? Well, well it's interesting that you use the word romantic. Um, I don't think you're using it as a compliment, although I take it as a compliment. Um, <laughs> That the Romantic movement um, is a, a reaction against lots of the evils which I've um, just been denouncing. Anyway, did it match up to um, what I imagined? Well, it didn't, of course, because I was very bad at um, inhabiting that space. Um, I am an incurably linguistic person, tyrannised by my language. Um, language intrudes between me and um, direct experience of anything in the world. Um, and I couldn't cast aside my own language. I couldn't um, inhabit uh, a wood as, as intimately as an upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherer uh, would have done. I couldn't see how colourful and charismatic and exciting it was in the way that um, an upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherer uh, could. But um, because most of me, just as most of you, um, is upper Paleolithic, gradually I felt some of the, the patina of the last 40,000 years or so being scraped off. Um, and I felt those ancient reflexes, which are so crucial for human thriving, um, coming back. Um, and if I had had the devotion to carry on this strange archaeological 
thought experiment for um, a little bit longer. I expect a lot more would have. So I, the challenge now, um, sitting in my centrally heated room in Oxford, is to learn how to be a hunter-gatherer here. Learn how to be a hunter-gatherer at the high table of my Oxford college. Um, learn how to bring to everything that I do, including my academic projects, the, the, the quality of attention and particularly the, the holistic appreciation of the world, um, which was, I, I think, uh, the way that um, hunter-gatherers looked out at their woods and steppes and caves. How do you even begin to approximate that out in the woods? Because it, you know, the Enlightenment seems fairly easy to recreate. You argue that we're still in it, essentially. But how do you even begin to live or even think like a Paleolithic person coming with all of your 21st century baggage? Well, I tried lots of things. Um, some of them were obvious physical things. So I went into a wood and I lived... <laughs> in a rough shelter and uh, I ate the food which I could scavenge or kill or gather. Um, but more importantly than that, I tried to replicate what I've already described as the quality of that um, upper Paleolithic attention. Um, so I tried to have... Uh, a fast, not just from food, although I did try that, and that was an important part of it, a fast from abstraction, a fast from language. So I tried to outlaw things which I I think would not have formed a big part of Upper Paleolithic reconstruction of the world. So things like similes and metaphors. I suspect, although they had them, um, they didn't form such a significant part of the architecture of, of their world. Um. So those were the main things. I have a real suspicion of the usual way in which histories of ideas are written. Histories of ideas are always written by people like me, academics in universities, who, because we're academics in universities, think that ideas are the primary things and that real human progress happened by someone sitting in an actual metaphorical study, having an idea and then going out and transforming the world on the basis of ideas. I don't think it really happens like that. It doesn't happen like that in our personal lives, does it? What happens is that we get feelings, we get sensations, we get intuitions. Um, and then our ideas are secondary to all those things. Um, so I'm a great advocate for this immersive way of trying to reconstruct the past. Go into a wood or a castle or wherever it is um, and feel what the wood and the castle does to the way that your gut behaves, the way that your nerve endings behave, and then uh, try to work out how the secondary ideas were generated by those primary sensations. So that's that's what I was trying to do, although it was jolly difficult, and um, I expect I got it massively wrong in this book. I am curious about how... Um your son Tom's experience differed from yours because he does travel with you to the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. Um, and at first he does dismiss the experiment as messing around in the woods, you know, camping without toilets. But ultimately he does seem to adapt to it in a way that is 
different, swifter. I'm not so sure how to describe it. Mm. Yes. Well, he, he's younger than I am. Um, he is more plastic uh, mentally than I am. Uh, he's less intimidated by new experiences than I am. Uh, but he also has the great gift, which I don't have, of dyslexia. And that means that his relationship with the world isn't a linguistic construct in the same way that mine is. Um, if I look out at a tree, I reduce it almost immediately into thoughts about trees, propositions about trees, remembered fragments of poems about trees, all things which have nothing whatever to do with that actual tree. Tom doesn't do that. Um, Tom has seen a tree in a way that I never will. Um, and he has a much more holistic appreciation of, of the way the world fits together. I'm crouched there in the left hemisphere of my brain, looking narrowly and nerdishly out at a tiny fragment of the world, not seeing how that tiny uh, fragment upon which I focus uh, relates to the whole. Um, Tom doesn't have that pathology because he has this great gift which uh, allows him to see the shimmering kaleidoscopic wonder of things in a way which I sadly will never see. I mean there is this wonderful passage in the Paleolithic period of your experiment in which you talk about your connection to Sheffield which is the place where you grew up and where the Paleolithic experiment takes place largely in the woods up there right. and reading that and then reading of Tom's success, I think, in that experiment, I wonder how much of it has to do with being a child. And as a corollary, how much of your pining for the Paleolithic might, in a sense, be a pining for childhood? That's a very acute question and a really intimidating one. Um, so the Upper Paleolithic was our childhood um, as humans. And I think that there was a genuine quality of innocence in the Upper Paleolithic, which allowed us to see things as they really were in a way that we have forgotten uh, to be able to do. So they had a more satisfactory epistemology, to put it pompously. Um, their view of the world was mediated through fewer distorting prisms. The subsequent post-Paleolithic history of the world is the history of the agglomeration of distorting lenses. Um, and so I suspect you're right in saying that um, I was uh, seeing a return to the Upper Paleolithic as a return to my childhood. And perhaps that was why I chose to do this piece of method acting up in the place where I grew up as a child. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I buy that, <laughs> although it's not occurred to me before. I was intrigued by a passage in the Neolithic period in which you spend some time with a farmer friend of yours, Meg, and her husband, Bert. And um, they're both you know, small-scale farmers, and Meg scolds you, essentially, for misunderstanding farming. And as a result, you know, the Neolithic story 
maybe her story. Um, and I thought that was an interesting, you know, maybe a proxy for the larger debate about the Neolithic, because I feel like that history is not really settled. No, you're quite right. Um, and one of the legitimate criticisms of this book, uh, which I was trying to make myself preemptively um, in, in the passage that you just mentioned, is that I set up straw men and then knocked them down. Um, and I, because I'm trying to condense 40,000 years of history, um, oversimplify. Um, so yes, of course, there are some genuinely good, redemptive, Neolithic practices. Uh, it's possible to be a good Neolithic farmer in the modern age, and lots of my friends really are. Um, and their relationship with their animals and their plants is a really fecund reflection of the way that hunter-gatherers uh, saw and see the world. So yes, if if you're accusing me of uh, of oversimplifying, I can only plead guilty uh, at a number of points in the book. Less of an accusation and more of a query, <laughs> I think. I'm, I'm I'm a very oversensitive chap, as you'll have picked up by now. <laughs> well, I think it can be said at least that you do wear your your preferences on your sleeve for the Upper Paleolithic. Um, and it does come out, I think, too, in your last book, which was Being a Beast. Um, probably Being a Beast, I would venture, having been neither a beast nor a Paleolithic person, is a little bit closer to that than either the other two eras. I mean, how does it compare for you, you know, the experiment of your last book to this one? Uh, well, in some ways, Being a Beast was very much easier to write. In some ways, it was very much harder to write. Um, it was very much easier to write um, because uh, nobody really knows what a badger or a fox or an otter uh, feels about the world, and therefore um, nobody could definitively contradict me. Um, on the other hand, there is a good deal of, of information about um, how people really lived in the ages which I examine in being a human, um, and therefore it was a much more vulnerable uh, enterprise to write a book about about being a human. But writing about being a human, I think, was ultimately far more difficult because humans are far more complex than those parts of a fox or a badger which I was able to access, which weren't very big parts. Um, and it's a really arrogant, presumptuous, hubristic thing to do, isn't it? To try to say uh, what a human being is. Um, I, I shudder to think of how the Olympian gods are viewing this enterprise. You know, are they are they poised to strike this Prometheus who, who, who dares to suggest that he knows what a human being is? And um, in an attempt to avert that thunderstrike, um, I, I will say that I, I have I have no idea, but that um, my look at that central question, what is a human being, um, baffled me the more I looked at it, and the overriding conviction which um, I was left with was that whatever we are, we are a superb and b because of our 
usually unrealized capacity for being superb, um, profoundly disappointing. Uh, I sometimes get accused of being a, a really grumpy, uh, misanthropic person because <laughs> um, I do say some some rather shrill things, particularly about modernity. I've said some of them to you in our conversation. Um, that's honestly not true. I, I have tremendous hope for the the future of humanity because of my conviction that our instincts, which were conceived and brought up in that uh, Upper Paleolithic period, which you rightly identify as one I like very much, um, are, are still there, still form the core of us. A lonely, isolated human, the sort of human who is conceived of as the economic unit, is a wretched one. Wretched on all levels. Um, unless we are communitarian individuals, unless we have uh, a communitarian sociology and a communitarian politics, um, we will not thrive by whatever metric of thriving one uses. Um, that was uh, expressed in the Upper Paleolithic and is still expressed um, in what one learns from the thinning of one's outer boundary in mindful meditation by a porosity, uh, by a, a, an openness to the non-us and therefore a, an openness to the unbidden and therefore um, an acknowledgement of the of the multivalency of the world, which comes with a realization that we're connected in a defining way to everything else that there is. That's a tremendously exciting insight. And I think it's the insight that um, that characterized um, the upper Paleolithic world and uh, engendered in humans the curiosity, the conviction that anything was possible, which made us what we are. It produced monstrosities, but it also produced and can produce wonders. We have links in the show notes to Charles Foster's new book, Being a Human, as well as its prequel, Being a Beast. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>